This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Um, so, uh, welcome to our panel today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the rapidly expanding world of virtual reality documentary. Um, I'm going to do a short introduction. So, first of all, uh, I'm Jess. Uh, I work uh, with a UK-based academic research group called IDOCS, Exploring Interactive Documentary. And I also work as uh, an associate producer with Vertov here in Melbourne. Um, so I'm going to introduce everyone else on the panel. Uh, everyone's going to present for about 15 minutes. We're going to have a panel discussion and questions from the audience if you guys have anything to ask. So uh, VR has quickly become the most talked about technology in the media industry. From the BBC to Hollywood, media makers around the world are experimenting with virtual reality as an entirely new way to tell stories. But what are the opportunities for non-fiction storytellers in a medium that puts the audience at the centre of the action? Exploring that question today and reflecting on their own experiences with VR, we have Katie Morrison. Uh, Katie is the co-founder and producer at virtual reality studio Vertov, um, making virtual reality and immersive experiences for non-fiction stories. In 2014, Vertov produced the first VR experience to win, an international, to win at an international festival, which was Ascent by Oscar Raby and it won the Interactive Audience Award at Sheffield Dockfest in 2014, um, and then later exhibited at Sundance uh, New Frontier in 2015. Last year, they produced Hola World, which was a VR experience, which also premiered at Sheffield Dockfest. And in addition to producing documentary VR, uh, they regularly run workshops and speak at festivals, including IDFA and Sheffield, um, facilitate hands-on engagement with VR production, techniques for broadcasters and media companies. Previously, Katie worked in documentary TV as a researcher and writer and producer. Uh, next up, we have Astrid Scott. Um, she's an experienced strategist for ABC's research and development team. R&D exists to explore and demonstrate emerging audience behaviors and technology opportunities in order to envision the future of media experiences for the ABC. She has also been a digital producer and content strategist, producing interactive and experimental documentary formats for the ABC, including the AFI award-winning Gallipoli the first day. She was heavily involved in ABC's experiments with 360-degree filmmaking, um, working on their short documentary, Warwick Gold, which will be the focus of her presentation today. In addition to all of this, Astrid has been a public interactive exhibition and events producer, a digital content manager, a researcher, a writer, an ancient historian, an art practitioner, and an illustrator. <laughs> She's busy. Um, and lastly, we have Julie Young, who's on the screen, um, and will be on that one for her presentation. Uh, she's joining us via Skype, and is a producer and financial officer with Emblematic Group, creating immersive journalistic st stories in virtual reality. Fast Company named their CEO, Noni de la Pena, one of the 13 people who made the world more creative for her pioneering work in the field. Their award-winning work has excited audiences internationally and has been featured in Wired, BBC, MIT Tech Review, Mashable, Huffington Post, Verge, and the LA Times. 
They've also created experiences for Standard Chartered Bank, the World Economic Forum, Tribeca Film Foundation, and Al Jazeera America, with work premiering at Sundance Film Festival 2014, 15, and 16, uh, TED Women, Sheffield Dockfest, South by Southwest, and Tribeca. What's interesting about emblematic groups' work is they not only create CGIs to recreate non-fiction incidents, but they also use real audio calls um, to make the scenes more accurate and impactful. So, uh, we will begin. Um. All right, thank you, Jess, for the introduction, and um, thank you for the opportunity to speak here alongside Astrid and, uh, and Julie. Got my presentation on the screen, yes. So, as you said, I'm a producer at Vertov, which is a virtual reality studio that I run together with um, Oscar Raby. Uh, we're based here in Melbourne. Um, as you may be aware, and what this panel kind of aims to cover to some extent, is that there are several methods to producing virtual reality and um, also lots and lots of different sets of questions to consider. And uh, while you know, the methodology question often very quickly goes very technical, um, I thought it might be interesting to explain um, the thinking and the interests that informed our approach at Vertov as well as a bit about um, the projects that we are making. Um, so, yeah, my clicker's working. Um, but I've got to remember to click there too. So yes. Uh, I'm going to explain our company name, but probably in this audience it may not be that necessary, um, which is something that I can never say outside a documentary forum. Uh, yes, we took our name from Siga Vertov, and uh, we did that because we are interested in um, the new ways that we can explore and innovate the language of documentary storytelling, and that is kind of our, the basis of the work that we do in VR. So to get us started on a bit of a primer on what virtual reality is and what it means to storytellers, I'm going to show you a video from last year's Sundance, um, which is really a, a good introduction. And it was the first year that they incorporated VR into the program in a, in a really big way. Um, Julie and Nonny were there in previous years, but I think they were the only, Julie will be able to confirm this, but they, they were the only VR piece. <laughs> um, last year we were there with, I think it was about nine VR pieces. So it became, it became a thing. And this year they had 30. So I think what Shari kind of, the thought that she leaves us on is a really important one for the state of the medium at the moment. Let's see where the artists take us because at the moment, you know, we, we do a lot of these panels, but really no one has the rule book written on this medium. So it is one of those things where we're all kind of experimenting and inventing the language as we go along. Um, but I do want to pick up on a few things that you might have seen in the video and we might talk about later in the discussion um, that I think are really important in virtual reality and are things that we can kind of start to think about as documentary filmmakers and um, understand how they add to our toolkit of, um, of, of things that we can use to tell stories. And um, Birdly, which was the experience that I don't know if you noticed, there was, um, there was a kind of a platform that you lie on and you flap your arms is a really good example of the, like one of the main differences or the main difference between virtual reality and any other medium in that is, it is completely embodied, right? By virtue of its very nature, you have, to use, you have to move your head, you have to use your body in order to activate the experience, in order to do anything in virtual reality. Um, so the interesting question for me is, um, is how does that become another tool that we can use as storytellers to engage our audience, to give them another experience, to try and draw them in another direction, to, to, to reveal some other truth to them, to them that, uh, that we haven't had that opportunity to do before. Um, but you know, I don't know how many of you have tried VR in this room, but, and as I'm saying, it's an embodied experience, it's quite obvious that it's very hard to, to convey what it is um, by just showing videos, <laughs> but that's all we have at the moment. Um, so we make, 
what we call um, polygon-based VR. Um, so there are a couple of different methods for creating VR, and, and, and one workflow involves cameras. We don't use cameras. We use 3D scanners to make what we do. Um, this picture up here is a, um, is a 3D scan that we made of a young woman in, um, in Dubai, um, and that scan has then been kind of pulled apart. You can kind of see the polygons, but um, it starts off as a as a complete mesh, it's almost photorealistic, um, but that's the treatment that we put on that one. Um, we build all our work in a game engine, so we use Unity, which is a 3D engine, so we kind of take everything, so from the real world, we take our scans and we put them into this environment, so instead of working in a linear format, like you would to, to cut a film, we're working in a spatial environment, which is this 3D game engine. Um, this kind of gives us, again, another set of tools to work with. We can use real-time interaction. Um, we can play with things like positional tracking and depth tracking. We know we can track exactly where the person is looking and what they're paying attention to, so it gives us more opportunities for analytics and impact. Um, the first VR piece that we made as Vertov, um, and this is actually before we founded the company, um, uh, as a company, it was Ascent, which you will have seen in the Sundance video. Um, that's a screenshot from Ascent showing the scanned model, that's actually Oscar, and the 3D environment that he's in. Um, when we were making Ascent, I don't think there was, there was never a moment where we kind of sat down and consciously said, okay, we must work in this way. We're going to throw out the camera and we're going to, you know, embrace 3D scanners. Um, but, you know, when I've been doing this talk, I, I kind of have been always reflective on the, um, the backgrounds of myself and of Oscar, who is my, um, who is my partner and co-founder of the company. Um, and it, it's always struck me that it's a very apt way of working um, when you kind of reflect on what we're interested in. Um, my background, as Jess said, is in documentary television. There are a few people that I've worked with and for in this room. Um, uh, but it, before, I was, uh, before I moved into working in TV, I studied at university um, to be an historian. And I thought, you know, no jobs in history, what will I do? I'll, I'll go and work in documentary, that's sure to get me employed. <laughs> um, so, but as a, as a historian, I was always really quite interested in historiography rather than, um, rather than in um, any other kind of method of talking about history. I was interested in the way that we create meaning around an event, um, more so than the, the, the facts of the event itself. Um, I was interested in its changing importance, how we understand things, um, and what that says about us today. So what's interesting now from my viewpoint and why I bring this up is that what I was always interested in was the space between an author and an audience and the conversation that can happen there. And I think that is what we actually can start to delve into in virtual reality. The methodology that we've chosen allows for interactive real-time VR. So a central concern for us is the agency of the user and how that affects the story that we're telling. So um, what's next for us is that um, we are at the moment developing a project which is a pan-African, sorry, I'm just gonna go right through, there we go. It is a project that grew out of workshops that we ran in Africa with um, um, Tribeca Film Institute and Big World Cinema. Um, it grew out of this idea that we wanted to bring artists together from all over the continent to work in VR, to explore and to experiment in interactive real-time virtual reality. And it's also for us an opportunity to kind of start to talk about and address some of the issues that, again, I think we might get to in the panel um, around access and diversity um, and kind of not 
repeating all the mistakes that have made, been made in the past in, in various other media and making sure that we make it a diverse space for creators. And the other couple of projects I just wanted to quickly mention before I run out of time. Um, so that is a that's a kind of a pan-African project that um, that brings lots and lots of artists together to create VR. We're working with them to create a series. Um, we have um, a project which will be in Tribeca Film Festival in April, which is a virtual reality fairy tale, which is um, actually our first not a first fiction project, which is really exciting, which um, is a collaboration with the BBC Research and Development Department. Um, and it's an exploration of how you start with um, binaural sound, so spatial sound recording, and how you can kind of move from that workflow into bringing that into a visually spatial environment, which is kind of the opposite to how you would normally work. Um, and it was just announced overnight, our next VR documentary, which is, um, a piece about the Irish Easter Uprising, um, and it's a collaboration with BBC I Wonder, and that will be launched in April, I think. So yeah, there's a few things on the on on the um, on the on the boil, I suppose, at the moment. But I, I think it's really important that everyone is is kind of starting to dabble in the space, I suppose. And I'm you know I'm looking forward to seeing more work coming out of Australia. A lot of our uh, our collaborations are at the moment overseas. Um, but I think that's obviously all going to change, especially with the announcements yesterday, <laughs> um, which Astrid may be able to tell you about. Okay. I'll need the you clicker. The clicker? <laughs> Thanks, Katie. I've been 3D scanned by Katie and Oscar. And it's really <laughs> trippy, actually, because you are, yeah, and they make you do things. <laughs> um, so uh, there I am. Uh, just out of interest, who has tried VR in the room? So a lot of you. Has anyone made any? Oh yeah, a couple. And 360 video, anyone dabbling? Okay, so, all right, good. <laughs> so I'm actually not a documentary filmmaker like you all. I am an experienced strategist for ABC's research and development area. And I'm going to talk to you today about the ABC's first experiment with VR, which happened last year in Warwick in Queensland, where we made a short 360 film, which was VR um, ready for um, about a cowboy uh, at a rodeo, Mick Mayer, who was a hometown champion about to compete for the national title. So I'll talk about why, uh, sort of why we decided to do that and how in a second, but I'll just give you context about who we are because uh, you wouldn't have heard of R&D, I imagine. Most of you think of the ABC as a public broadcaster and um, we are a very small part of it. We're a little group based in Sydney and Melbourne and our mission is to demonstrate what the ABC might be doing or five, five, ten years' time. Sort of changes depending on where we're at. But um, we try and work out what technology is going to shift into or how the public's expectations around technology are going to shift and how the ABC might need to start to respond to that. So we run workshops, you can see, with producers. We make demos, we do prototypes, we try and do accessible reports. We work with the public to try and work out what they're doing that we don't know what they're doing at the moment. And we think it's really important because it helps us plan in a way that might let us take advantage of this technology, which is changing really, really quickly. And as you know, public broadcasters don't tend to move very fast as a general rule. So um, it, it's sort of like preparatory work. Um, Warwick Gold was um, one of these demos, and I'll just, um, I guess one thing to say is if we're working five to ten years ahead, why would R&D be interested in VR when obviously we're all ahead because it's happening right now and it's really um, a lot of buzz. But uh, 
we, we need to get started. Um, and for us, although VR is attainable, and it's attainable for a lot of reasons, it also presents a lot of challenges for a distribution, which some of which I'll talk to you about um, and will be of interest to you as producers. Uh, so we, we needed to kind of get started to um, get the ABC started, I suppose, in a way that made sense. Um, I'll talk a little bit about what we actually did and I think it's interesting for you guys as doco makers because we used ABC regional producers to produce the film and we hired a VR production company to teach us how to do it so it was like on the job training. But I, a little bit before I start about why we're interested, um, I mean for all the reasons I said in the video you can take people to places in Australia perhaps that you haven't um, been able to, you know, that there's a lot of mileage in our unique locations and our unique stories, but also the different types of um, content that we can bring to it. Our current affairs one was one I mentioned in particular, but our news teams are very interested in it. Also, yeah, kids, um, education, there's a lot of opportunity for us. But for, for me as an R&D person and not somebody regularly producing VR, for us it's the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we think about. And, in the future and what people are going to be experiencing as um, content formats in the future. Like we think VR's just the start of many more immersive experiences, especially in home experiences, potentially in car experiences, augmented reality where you put a holographic layer or an augmented layer over um, your real world environment is something that we can imagine people transitioning to in, in five to ten years. It, as an in-home entertainment experiences, and I'm not saying that screen-based content and documentary content as it is at the moment is ever going to disappear because I don't actually believe that's the case. I just see this as an, an evolution and that there's going to be a, a, an increase in the, the different ways that people experience entertainment experiences in their home or documentary experiences in their home. And so as publishers and as producers, we have to think about a whole suite of things now about you know, VR is an opportunity for us to experiment with that. So we think about narrative, we think about scene setting, we think about authenticity, um, suitability for genre. Not everything's going to work in VR, and why? Why would you make it? Um, and about more prosaic things like production costs and workflows and uh, audience and who's going to watch it and distribution and. The underlying sort of principles of journalism come into play, you know, how do our standards and our ethical considerations sort of um, need to adapt to encompass things like, you know, cameras where somebody standing back there may not know that they're being filmed or may not know they're participating in something. So when we talk about a world beyond the screen, which is a phrase that we like to use, we need to consider all those things. And we use that to talk about a profound shift in the way that the emerging technology landscape is changing. And it's a, a trend towards more natural environments where you might use your body more to experience content or intelligent technology that understands who you are as you enter the space and responds to it accordingly, providing you with the kind of content that you need. And part of that picture, I guess, is more enveloping. I like the word enveloping as well as immersive um, entertainment experiences. So we're looking at VR really as a first point. That's uh, what's, I don't, can't remember how many hundreds of people at TED, at TED uh, viewing Chris Milk's talk um, last week. So there was 100,000, <laughs> there's a lot anyway. I like how the little eyes are on the outside. <laughs> So that was the team. Uh, we had uh, ABC Open producers, three, one from Warnable, one from uh, Mackay, one from Geraldton, and our uh, rural reporter from Orange, Cassie, and then the two guys from Pixel, Pixel Case who are actually based, they're a VR company that have been operating about 15 years, but they're based in Bunbury. 
Uh, <laughs> so it was a real pan-Australian production, which I really liked about it because uh, what was really clear to these guys, none of these guys, apart from obviously the VR production, people had ever experienced VR, they'd never tried it, and then they were going that day to make it. And how quickly um, experienced, you know, talented documentary filmmakers can pick up the principles and, and run with them and adapt and shift the way that they actually do things uh, is really impressive. So we decided to make something specifically for VR. Now, 360 video is fantastic for us. Um, it's really great because you can distribute it on um, Facebook and YouTube. And we've been giving our news teams and some of our producers a little handheld 360 cameras to go out and shoot live events. Um, but for, for a lot of our content, we, we want it to be, you know, we want to experience immersion. So we're thinking about something like Four Corners or Foreign Correspondent. You might really want to have that fully immersive video experience. And so we wanted to learn how to make it at a certain level of quality, like so that it could be played on something like an Oculus Rift. So we hired experts to help us do it, and you can see them setting up there. That way we knew we could then pass it on to our IBC producers and a certain amount of information on to the public. Um, so talking about the film itself, it's about Mick Mayer, who's a rodeo champion. He's a saddle bronc rider, and he is a local to Warwick, which is in inland southern Queensland. Um, he grew up at... A, at a school that had a rodeo elective, so <laughs> horse riding's pretty important to him. And he's been in America becoming a rodeo champion. So when we meet Mick, it's in the morning of the camp draft and rodeo, and he's about to compete for the national title, and he's the hometown local favourite. Um, and it's pretty meaningful for them. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, rodeos aren't really my thing, but <laughs> sort of uh, amazing how important it was to the community and what a deep... Um, uh, opportunity it is for people from a very, very big area to get together and connect and hang out. And so the pressure's on and he looks quite pensive in that picture there, which is why I chose it. Um, unfortunately, he, he lost. <laughs> we're a bit worried that we made him lose because we were following him around with um, cameras. So the production for us was a really massive learning curve um, for the producers. As I said, they'd never tried it before, and it's way too much detail to go into. Um, I will say that there's a project site that I'll give you the URL at the end that you can go and look up if you're interested in more detail about how we made it. Um, given that only a few of you have produced VR, I'll just quickly go through a couple of principles. Um, you've got a nested head of cameras, as you can see there, five or six, and you have to put them in one place. So it's a, the first time that producers realise that they can't be, you know, with the camera because they'll be in shot is actually, it's quite fun to watch because they're just like, what? No. <laughs> they hide in barrels, they hide behind trees, it's sort of... Um, uh, sometimes uh, with the, the radio shot itself, they had the camera out on a long boom and they were like, you saw a cast in and that, you know, but the person's always going to be in shot. Um, that's okay. To be honest, half the time someone's looking in the other direction and that's something to remember. Your frame is not the same frame that you're used to thinking about. You, half the time it's boring over there so they're not even going to look for two seconds. They look around and they go, oh, there's the cameraman, too bad. And then they go back to where the action actually is. So you, you start thinking about shooting in the way that you're thinking about standing beside someone. Um, and also time, the, the, the idea of you know, time and fast edits aren't really a, a possibility in video for VR because you just end up making everyone sick and disoriented because they're kind of like jumping about, they're really feeling. Um, so you, know, you go for longer shots where you're giving people the opportunity to look around. And for a couple of our producers, that was a real challenge. They felt like they lost some of the artistry 
because they couldn't control things like the, you know, the direction of the gaze in quite the same way. Now, Kate, what Katie and Oscar do allows them more tricks because it's interactive, so you can pull people towards things. But in video, you're relying a little more on like sound cues and that the action's just over there and people will find it eventually, which they do. Um, you have to allow a lot of time for capturing six streams of video. <laughs> That's important to remember. And then you, you basically sync these up and you can see the, um, the desktop there has got the software that you use to basically sync up six streams of video and then you stitch them together. You're going to make mistakes in stitching if you do it quickly, but to be honest, like I said, no one's always looking at it. So you can, it, it's more forgiving in that respect, I think. Um, finally, you can then take it into Final Cut or Premiere using plugins and, and edit and export it as the 360 file with the metadata that you need to run it. So. A lot of this detail will go out the window as cameras get better. Uh, integrated cameras are improving all the time and they will just capture a 360 um, uh, stream that requires none of this extra work. But at the moment, uh, for an outside shoot like this, uh, the multi-camera rig is still your best option. So it's a, a little bit more work. Being flexible is very, very important <laughs> and explaining uh, what you're doing because no one's ever done it before and they have no idea. So. Finally, there's some major considerations involved in thinking about VR as a format for public um, media organisation, and this will apply to producers as well. You know, It's still ad hoc in terms of distribution. Um, all the headsets, there's many different headsets and there's more coming on the market this year. At the moment, they have um, a store, like an app store, so uh, the Oculus store, um, but they all have slightly different specifications. For me, it's very much like the early day of, days of developing for mobile production, you know, you have to just think about all your different um, headsets. Uh, we went with YouTube 360 because we wanted to distribute it to as many Australians as possible. Um, and uh, that allows you to give people a, a cardboard headset if they play it back on the, um, on the app. Um, even with YouTube, we found that really hard to get it to our audience. So how do you explain what to do? Where do they need it? You know, what do they need? Where do they get the cardboard? You know, what, what viewers do they need to download? It's not the same on iOS as it is on Android. So you have to explain this, and then you also have to explain that perhaps Google Cardboard isn't the real potential of VR, and if they're going to get one of these fantastic headsets on, they're going to have that oh well moment so much more. So. We've had a, a few issues with thinking about that, but the thing is it's changing all the time and once you've thought it, thought it through, you come up with the best approach and you just keep working from there. It's like any new technology, we, we work it out pretty, pretty easily eventually. So we feel like we've put really good instructions on our um, site for you to um, go and steal if you ever want to <laughs> make something and <laughs> share it via YouTube and Cardboard. And, um, if anyone actually has an Oculus or a, or a gear and they want me to send them a link, it's not in the stores at the moment, but I'll, I'll just send you a Dropbox. Um, that's me, I think. Yes, sorry. <laughs> so uh, I'll look forward to talking in the panel and any questions you might have. Cool. Thank you, Astrid. Julie, are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, okay, so my name is Julie. Um, I am a producer at Emblematic Group. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we are a virtual reality company. We're based in um, Los Angeles, California. So uh, it's almost 3 p.m. my time. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I wanted to first talk a little bit about our CEO, Nani De La Pena. Um, she unfortunately is en route to Tel Aviv right now, so she can't be here. Um, but she was one of the, you know, kind of very first people in VR storytelling. She's been 
working in VR for almost 10 years, and she um, she's been called the godmother of VR by a number of uh, like uh, um, news articles and stuff like that. Um, and she produced what was considered sort of the first ever VR narrative documentary, like Katie was saying, um, in 2012, and that was called Hunger in LA, and it was uh, shown at Sundance. And um, so she was kind of the first person who, you know, came up with this idea of like, what if we put somebody inside a spatial narrative and have them experience something, would that give them like a heightened sense of empathy or a heightened sense of understanding um, about a situation or a marginalized community that they wouldn't be able to understand in real life? And um, so, yeah, from there, she kind of coined the term um, immersive journalism and um, has been doing that ever since. Um, so uh, she was working on a project um, where she wanted to she wanted to investigate um, the you know the state of hunger, um, particularly in Los Angeles. It's um, a lot of hungry people are sort of sort of invisible. Um, there are a lot of food banks that run out of food. The lines are insane. Um, so she wanted she wanted to to make a piece around this topic and to to convey to people what it's like um, to to be in that kind of situation um, when you can't really understand what it's like. Um, so she sent an intern out to the First Unitarian Church in LA, um, which has a food bank. And um, while the intern was there, she had a Zoom mic and she was just recording audio. And um, while she was there, a man, um, the man in front of her collapsed um, into a diabetic coma because he had been waiting for food for too long in the line. So um, kind of there's, there's all this panic and the paramedics show up and no one really knows what to do. And there's, it's just complete chaos. Um, so then, next slide. So then um, she brings, so as Katie was saying, we, we almost always work with real audio when we can. Um, one of the main like hypotheses of, of our company is that um, audio is kind of the most important element in um, VR, particularly journalistic VR. Um, so Nani had $700 of her own money and she made um, Hunger in LA um, kind of in the same style that Katie and Oscar um, make VR, you know, using the you know a gaming engine and uh, like 3D animation, real-time rendered graphics, and that kind of thing. Um, so next slide. So yeah, we put you in the line, and then you're kind of waiting in line. You're hearing all the real audio that the intern felt, and then the man in front of you collapses into into um, like a diabetic coma, and you know everyone's panicking, and the and the paramedics come, and it's. And it, it basically gives you this feeling of helplessness that you can't get with any other medium. You can't get it with 2D. You can't get it really with, with reading articles. You have, to, you have to actually experience it to feel how helpless people felt in that line. And it gives you a whole understanding of the issue. Um, OK, so it was selected for Sundance in 2012. Next slide, sorry. <laughs> um, so at the time, this was, pre, um, this was pre-Oculus. This was pre-any kind of consumer or even really developer hardware. Um, so Nani was working with a pair of goggles out of the Institute for Creative Technologies, which is one of the main birthplaces of kind of modern day VR as we know it. Um, so she couldn't bring um, these goggles with her to Sundance because it was like a $50,000 pair of like uh, military research goggles. <laughs> um, so next slide. Um, fortunately, there was a very talented uh, young man named Palmer Lucky who also worked in the lab. and so. He, um, he d um, built the goggles that Nani then took to Sundance, um, and they ran people through the experience. And as we all know, nine months later, he did the Kickstarter for Oculus Rift. And then 
A year after that, sold the company for $2 billion to Facebook. So kind of the beginning of that, that whole um, you know, consumer hardware, as, or even developer hardware as we know it today, um, you know, Nani was a part of it from the beginning. Um, so they took it to Sundance, and this next video that I want to show, um, it's a video I sent over before. They didn't know what kind of reaction they were going to get, um, but this video kind of explains it. Yeah, so as you can see, that was kind of all around the, the reaction that people had. They just felt so moved by, by what, was, what was happening, and you just, you just don't get that in 2D. Um, so since then, Nani decided, you know, this is what she wants to work on for the rest of her life, and now we have a full company called Emblematic Group with 10 employees in Santa Monica, California. Um, and since then, we've worked on a number of different pieces with a number of different um, partners. Most of them are kind of like impact-focused or um, journalistic-focused. Um, one of our more well-known ones is called Project Syria. Um, it was commissioned by the World Economic Forum to raise awareness for child refugees. Um, it was created in the same vein as um, uh, Hunger in LA, where we took real audio and put you on scene in the middle of Aleppo um, when a bomb goes off. And it just it, it and then we take you into like a food bank and then into a refugee camp. So it just it gives you kind of a more visceral reaction of what it's like to actually be there. And next slide. Um, so then last year we also did um, a piece about Trayvon Martin. And um, for those of you who don't know, Trayvon Martin was an African-American man. Um, he was living in Sanford, Florida in the United States, and he was shot and killed by a neighborhood watchman named George Zimmerman. And um, uh, George Zimmerman got off on the grounds of self-defense, and it really upset and angered a lot of Americans because um, you know, it raised all these, que these questions about around race relations and um, you know, our, our court system failing us and you know how how racism played a role in that in that case we just don't know because no one was there so we took the real audio that george zimmerman um like because all the nine like audio when you call the police like the 911 audio is is saved so we took all that audio and recreated things based on google maps and um based on like the actual architectural renderings of the condominium condominium complex where um he was shot and um we recreated that experience um, so obviously, this 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 particular piece is really interesting in terms of the questions around journalistic integrity, right? Because if you recreate something in VR, one, that's just that's so much more visceral and immersive. Um, but two, no one we we couldn't actually show George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin fighting because it would just be highly unethical, and nobody nobody knows what actually happened. So instead, we put you inside the the witnesses condos. So the the witnesses were calling in to the police saying, you know, I hear some, there's some kind of physical brawl outside. I, I heard a gunshot. Um, so we put you inside their, com inside their condos and it was dark outside so you can't actually see them fighting. And then you can do the next two slides actually. Um, yeah, so our next project, uh, we did a project called Use of Force which put you on scene at the US-Mexico border. Um, and this was when a man named Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, who was an illegal um, Mexican migrant in the U.S., he was beaten and killed by U.S. Border Patrol. Um, and we had a witness who took cell phone video and audio, and we recreated it based on her own memory. And you're basically standing there watching this happen, and everyone is next to you yelling, he's not resisting, he's not resisting, um, but they beat him to death. Um, and then more recently, we did a project this year called Across the Line with Planned Parenthood. Um, and we 
essentially you walk into like a healthcare clinic and um, pro-life protesters are yelling like terrible things at you, like you whore, you slut, um, and you walk through that. Um, so as you can tell, all of our pieces are very uplifting and cheery. <laughs> um, and next slide. Um, the one I kind of want to talk more in depth about is Kia. And Kia was a project that we did with Al Jazeera America um, that we released on Gear VR, um, which is like the white headset um, that with the mobile phone. Um, we released it at Nani's TED Talk last year, and then we released it again at Sundance this year on Vive, which is like the big um, like walk around headset, the very like high powered one. Um, so Kia is the story of, um, uh, Kia was a woman in South Carolina um, who was shot and killed by her husband. Um, but basically they're arguing and he has a gun. And, and while he's doing that, Kia's two sisters um, are kind of, they're on the phone back and forth with the police, um, trying, to, trying to have them intervene um, it, but in, in a way that, that keeps her alive. You know, so they're, they're going back and forth with the police. So we use, so we can go to the next slide. Um, so we used all of that real audio um, and recreated it. So on the left here, or yeah, on my left, <laughs> is the actual photographs from the, the crime scene. So this is the actual, um, you know, trailer home where she was shot. And then on the right is our recreations of it in CG. So as you can see, we try to be as photo real as possible. Um, and then, uh, so, okay, next slide. Oops. Um, so um, the big kind of question that um, Katie was alluding to earlier is, is why do we do this in CGI rather than using straight 360 video? Because obviously the, the, the main kind of challenge that we face with CGI is that we don't have photo real characters. We have to animate them to look realistic um, and that can be very challenging. Um, but the reason, um, you can go to the next slide. Um, the reason for that is that we want to do sort of room scale VR experiences. So with Kia, the domestic violence piece, um, we released it once on Gear VR as, and, and Gear VR just has basic um, rotational tracking. So you can look around like this, but you can't actually walk around. Um, and so we released it once on Gear VR and then once on Vive. And we found that the experience on Vive where you could actually walk around um, it gave the user so much more agency. You know, they felt so much more involved because a guy is, you're in the room with a guy with a gun and you can make choices about where you go or if you try, we have people try to like kind of intervene or like they want to reach out and stop him. And I think that that kind of interactivity um, is really, is a, a really essential part of sort of the future of where this, this medium is going. And um, so at this point in time, you can, you can only get that with experiences that are, um, you know, rendered in real time using a game engine um, rather than the, the straight 360 video. Um, oh, this is just a picture of a, um, some 360 video we shot at a refugee camp. Um, yeah, so we think that, that um, the future of this medium is gonna be kind of the integration of 360 video with the CG. Um, going back to what Katie was talking about earlier, um, we, we're now moving into like a lot of the, the scanning we're taking real actors and taking them, you basically take them into a rig that has, um, you know, between 80 and 120 cameras and they all take a picture at the same time. And that spits out like a very sort of photo real CG human in a way. So this picture on the left with the girl in the orange shirt, 
that's a scanned character that we used in our piece with Planned Parenthood. So as you can see, it's just much, much more photo real. And it, it's, uh, it just, it's gonna, it adds a whole other element of immersion when the humans look really, really realistic. And then um, videogrammetry is, is something that we're really, really, really excited about. Um, videogrammetry is, is very similar to um, photogrammetry, except that it's video. So you, so you, can, you can record someone in a rig you know, reciting lines or acting something out or just delivering a monologue and you'll actually get, it's not, it's not a CG human, but it's very, it's, it's 3D. Like you could walk around it in a vibe. Um, and it just creates an extraordinarily photo real, um, person. So that's, that's like the number one thing we're most excited about at Emblematic Group. And we're, um, we're using that in our next project we're doing in an LGBT project. Um, and we're going to have the, the main character, the, the sort of the protagonist of the story, we're going to fly him out and have him, you know, do a monologue in 8i. Um, and 8i is the company that does the videogrammetry. Um, so that's sort of like a basic overview of some of our past work and what we do. Um, coming up, we're doing a big project with um, Frontline in uh, like public broadcasters in America. Um, and uh, we're doing the LGBT project and a couple other branded projects. Yeah, that's my Twitter handle if you want to tweet at me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Uh, okay, so I think we'll get started on the panel discussion, and I hope you can keep up, Julie, uh, with our, us talking here and we can uh, make that work. Um, so uh, I want to ask a couple of questions, and then if you guys have any questions, we've got some roving mics, and um, we can do that in about 10 minutes. So I'm going to dive straight in as all of you touched on this. Um, what do you think the ethical considerations this medium presents makers um, and how do you relate to people trying to tell documentary stories in VR? I don't know if he wants to it's, start. <laughs> it's a big question and I think, I mean, it's a good first question because, um, because it's something that we all grapple with and I don't know that I have any answer really to give you except that um, there are, I, I think as documentary makers, we need to consider the kinds of experiences we are um, we are offering up to our users, our audience. Um, as like looking through Julie's body of work, you know they're all very, very um, thorny issues that she's delving into, and she's putting people in experiences that are going to be challenging. They're going to be emotionally confronting. Um, um, what responsibility do we have as creators to our audience? Obviously, we have a lot of responsibility, but I don't know that we've ever. We, I don't know that we've identified. The line yet, and I'm sure there will be people stepping right over it, you know, um, if they haven't already. Uh, so I think it is. I think it's good to have the conversation, but I don't know what the answer really is, apart from that we need to all be really cognizant of the fact that, you know, you might be giving something to someone that is going to trigger something really terrible for them. Mm. Um, I know that we always give a trigger warning um, when we are putting people into ascent, for example. Ascent deals with an execution, so we say, you know. Um, it, you're going to see something confronting. If you feel uncomfortable at any stage, you can raise your hand and we'll take it off you, you know. So we're trying to take care of people in that way. Once VR starts to go into the home, um, obviously we can't be there to, to mediate that. Yep. So it is, it's a challenge. Yeah, I showed a, a colleague a um, VR horror movie and she thinks she's got PTSD still because she, <laughs> she has um, flashbacks. Yeah, I've refused to watch any horror films. Yeah. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, I, yeah, 
exactly that, that that Katie's talking about responsibility, but I also think ahead to interesting sort of scenarios, I suppose, for us as a, a news organisation when um, 360 video becomes, you know, the, the ability to experience streaming immersive 360 video, and some of you would have heard about the debates, the democratic debate and stuff earlier, or late mm. last year, and the streaming video experiences that people can be in. If you're a journalist out in the field, for instance, um, at the moment there's a level of editorial oversight at which we go, oh, well, we're not going to show the public this because we're, um, you know, we're cutting it off as editors or we're, we're, you know, we're making X amount available, this is not appropriate to show. But of course, with a live streaming 360 um, experience, you've got no control over that. You don't, know, you don't know what's happening behind you necessarily. Like this idea that you um, might need to call a situation as a journalist becomes quite an interesting one. It's going to put a lot more responsibility both on the, the person in the field, the producer in the field operating, and, and the person at home to make their own decisions about whether or not they're going to continue watching and whether or not people will actually monitor themselves like that. I don't know. I think that I have a tendency to believe they might, um, just based on, on feedback. Mm. Um, a, a woman who has got nothing to do with documentary uh, said something very interesting to me, which was, I think it's really irresponsible to make people this empathetic because you can manipulate them and you can change the way that somebody feels about something so much more easily and that, that's bad. And I was like, you, you don't think you can do that with a regular documentary? And she said, it's not that I feel it more, I just kind of... It sticks in my head in a different way, and that was her way of articulating, I suppose, the power of the, the immersive experience to drum home a, a sense of what the, the physical reality is like, that visceral thing that um, Julie was talking about. So, yeah, there's quite a few um, ethical considerations that we all need to start talking about, mm. I guess. Did you have anything else to add to that, Julie? Yeah, yeah, so we get this question a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I think that it's, 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 it's a new technology and it's, it's, it's it, it, new technology always really frightens people. Um, I think it'll work itself out. I think that, you know, we found ways to censor things on TV and in the same way, in the same way, we'll find, uh, we'll find out how to censor things in VR. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of feel like we might get people choosing things as well, choosing what they're going to watch and how much they're going to experience a certain type of, like, you won't watch horror movies, you know, you will just not choose to do that to yourself. And I think as we get more opportunity to experience things immersively, we're going to decide what we want here and what we want mm. safely over there. <laughs> so, yeah. And you still very much have the trailer with VR experiences at the moment, you still get the video trailer, so you can, you can kind of get a sense of what's going to be in it, although, yeah, I think you can still be shocked by what you see. I mean, I watched Kia on the Vive for the first time yesterday, and I knew what it was about, but I still, I don't want to ruin it, but yeah, there, was, <laughs> there were still moments that I was shocked by. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you're, you're prepared for it. Sorry? And then it, it, I, try to, I try to look at the positive side. Yeah. I mean, it just creates awareness and like to, to really be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Mm. I mean, that's going to have a much, that's going to have a huge positive effect on the world, much more so than it's going to like manipulate people or, or yeah. hurt them or, you know, I just think in, in it's going to, it's going to be an amazing thing for the world. I think it actually also, just on Kia, I um, had the same kind of thoughts while I was watching it. Um, 
there's, you know, there's a moment where, you know, the action is unfolding around you and I felt myself in that moment just unable to even, I couldn't even look at what was going mm. on and I was aware of myself doing this and I thought, you know, like I think maybe that because you're very, um, you're, it's very easy to notice your own behaviour in VR at the moment, um, I get maybe because it's new or maybe just because it is more embodied than other media. Um, it, it does cause it causes me anyway to reflect a little bit more on what I what I want to engage with, what I don't want to engage with, and within the story, you know, like what does that say about me that I can't watch this? Un, I can't watch this happening, you know. Mm. So I think that those it does raise kind of interesting points that you can kind of, as producers and as storytellers, you can kind of tap into that and go, okay, well maybe that's something that I can bring into my story. Yeah, I think this. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say this kind of leads on to the next question anyway, which you might be going to talk about, um, which is about compassion and emotion and, and empathy and the assertion that VR elicits more um, than regular a regular medium. Do you think this is true or do you think it's uh, an exaggeration or is that not as clear cut? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, pretty objective research around around that that area too. Like there's a, a researcher named Mel Slater um, in Barcelona who's done some incredible work around like, you know, essentially you're you're looking into the mirror and you you are somebody else. Like you are, for example, like an African American person or you're you're a child and you actually do subconscious things where like for example when they I, I forget the exact research, but they when they looked in the mirror and they were a child um, they, they, they started speaking with a higher voice. Hmm. Um, so you do all these subconscious things where you actually, you, you, you kind of embody empathy in the same vein that you experience it. Um, so I think it's absolutely true. We have people all the time take off the headset, especially for Project Syria. They take off the headset crying and they're like, you know, I, I see this and I, I know what's happening. I've seen it on TV. I hear about it and I read about it, but now I get it. And it's, it's kind of that that like that yeah. i get it that's yeah. sort of the next generation of storytelling yeah i mean i think i think what julie's speaking to there is is really relevant and i think that um to me um it's not an it's not an equation it's not vr equals empathy um it's that good vr can right um and i think that there are things that you can do and the things that that Nani and julie do which really help you to feel i think it's all about feeling present and we talk a lot like that that's one of kind of the buzzwords of vr is presence right and you talk a lot about it and some vr experiences you don't feel present in at all you know <laughs> and they're the the, le the less successful ones and the more successful ones you do really feel a sense of presence from whatever the filmmaker is doing to 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 create that in you um, and they may be, you know, they may be even doing things like giving you a body, in which case, you know, you're looking at your arm and you're, you're seeing the colour of your skin and maybe it's not the colour that you expected, you know. Those sorts of things can really help you to feel present in a scene and I think when you've got that sense of presence, yeah, you can, you can work with things like empathy. I don't think merely turning your head, that ability, really gives you much um, extra empathy. I, I really think people have, to, producers have to work harder to... Um, to, to tap into that if that that's what they're trying to do. It'll be interesting to see what happens as we expand more into the world of sensors and things like smart fabrics and haptic feedback and all those little tricks that are happening um, now in early days, you know, what that does when you start actually feeling the environment. Do you feel cold? Do you feel hot? Do you feel 
sort of, um, you know, a level of needling, I don't know. <laughs> there's, um, yeah, there's, I guess there's different ways to feel um, empathy. It's, it's sort of an interesting question, what, what is empathy? Because obviously good documentary has the same power to reduce you to tears and make you feel mm. incredibly present as well. It's, it's more like a, a more expansive um, ex physical extension of that feeling. So, yeah. I think that's the key, that kind of, mm. as you all said, the physical mm. side of it, you're like embodying mm. it rather than just, it's just yeah. a feeling. Can't wait for haptic gloves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, people, we're still trying to test it out, I suppose. Um, Ascent was 12 minutes, 12 to 15, it's interactive so you can kind of progress at your own speed. Um, we found that that felt fine for people. Um, a lot of the early experiences were only around four to five minutes, but that was often because of the file size. Um, so it was taking people, you know, like hours to download files to their phone. So, you know, you don't want to make it too long. I do know, and Julie, you maybe have more informed than me about this. Um, there was an experience that I think was at Sundance that was 30 minutes. Um, so I, it's, it's expanding. At the moment, our upcoming projects are all in the 12 to 15 minute kind of bracket. Yeah, ours are also, we try to keep them 12 to 15 minutes. I think, I think honestly, the, the bigger thing being in VR and making, making it long, like for a long time is, um, is, is just the movement, like how you design, like if you design it so that it doesn't make you nauseous or anything, mm. or it doesn't make your body confused about where it is, mm. um, then you can keep someone for much longer. But if you're like on a roller coaster or something and you're going up and down, up and down, like you probably want to keep that to a minute or so. <laughs> Um, but there was a 30-minute. I I think I might I might be speaking incorrectly, but I think the Martian um, foxes and VRC's project was um, 30 minutes. But I actually didn't do it. So I saw someone reviewing something the other day, and they said they were reviewing a new headset, and they were saying that they'd been comfortably using the um, the Vive for kind of a couple of hours at a time mm. without having any problems. So. I think as you know, the resolution becomes more accessible to us and file sizes <laughs> are less of an issue that we'll see more and more longer films. People are definitely playing games mm -hmm. for much yeah. longer periods of time without those problems and they're immersed in those games. So yeah, I, I, I imagine it's like at the moment it's still you know, a cost kind of distribution issue that's mm. gonna evolve very quickly so into longer formats. With, as always with costs, it's like how long is a piece of string? You can get consumer um, hardware very, very cheaply, right? So, um, so the scans you saw from Ascent were done in 2013, right? So think back, technology has increased uh, you know, a lot since then, but that was done with a hacked Microsoft Connect, right? And you can buy a, a Microsoft Connect for $100. Um, we are all, we, you can also buy things like attachments for your iPad for in the range of five to $600. So, you know, it, it starts there and then it goes up to the kind of level that Noni was speaking, that Julie was speaking to um, with, you know, arrays of cameras and special studios built for that kind of, um, built for that workflow. Uh, and yeah, but you can, it's, it's accessible. As it is at the moment, you can just go out and, and order this stuff online and under $1,000, you're away. Did you have anything to add to that, Julie? I don't know if your um, production no, costs are... Um, it can be, it's kind of like, you can pay a lot more for like more detail and more quality, more, you know, certain cleanups and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it's very, it's very accessible. Like, yeah. 
the, the tool set that we have now is slightly different to the tool set that we had in the past, right? So yeah, we do have to think about, um, about how to guide our user through an experience that may not be just putting something inside a frame because, you know, if we put it inside a frame, we know they're going to look at it unless they're doing something else, making a cup of tea or whatever it is. But, um, you know, in an immersive environment, we have to think more carefully about um, how to get someone to look in a certain direction. And, and, and sound is like, I can't emphasize the importance of, overemphasize the importance of sound. It's so, it's so key to VR. Um, good sound, like good sound is always important, but, but when you are relying on sound cues to kind of draw people's attention, you, you know, it, it becomes even more so. It's kind of the, the, the sort of the thread of the, the story goes there. I think, you know, we have to start thinking about all sorts of different things, like how do we, I, I kind of think things like architecture um, and immersive theater have so much to, to teach us um, and as much to teach us as regular filmmaking does when we're working in this, in this practice because you know you think instead of instead of giving someone a frame you're giving them a vista right and you're giving them a really appealing vista and you want them to look there right um, so yeah I think that we just have to kind of expand the kind of the the traditions that we look at and see what we can learn from them and mm. you know we're doing some research with the National Theatre Company in London um, in May we're going for a residency just to see exactly that like what can theatre teach us that, that can be helpful in VR I mean for, for you know, working in video for camera ops, there's still lots of exciting technical challenges, you know, which <laughs> switch, uh, and, and it requires quite a bit of thinking and working with a, with a director to, you know, decide how to set up a shot because there, there's constraints about having intersecting video um, streams at the moment, so that's one. But also, you know, when you shoot something inside, how, how close do you actually want to be? Where do you put the viewpoint, like how high up or how, you don't want to be floating above something, you want to be sort of in the middle of it, but so it seemed to me as an, a, you know, being on the shoot is that it's quite a, um, a technically um, sort of, uh, I guess, you required a lot of technical agility to adapt to shooting environments and you had to think on your feet about how you might change your um, narrative like the shot that you expected to set up might not actually work so you have to think around your narrative quite quickly so there's a bit of um, I, I guess creative play in that that I think people liked um, this idea of you know controlling the gaze is definitely hard I, I would imagine as a filmmaker to let go of and our guys definitely struggled with that a little bit you know so how do I tell the story and you just have to yeah, actually you have to almost be more organic, I feel. You have to think about the environment and how that can allow you, exactly as Katie says, how that can, um, like how a visual point in the distance might even draw someone's gaze. So yeah, you, you do think very um, choreographically, I don't know, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. so. Did you have anything to add? Yeah. Yeah, kind of as every, Like when, when cameras first came out, like, like photography, people would pose as if they were being painted. Mm. And we're sort of in that kind of mindset with VR right now. It's like we're trying to we're trying to direct the eye as if we're inside a 2D box. And I think that as as we keep exploring and using VR and embracing the fact that the actual user is the storyteller in a way, you know, their their story is where they choose to look. Um, 
that the, the whole language will kind of unfold and, and start to make more sense. Mm. Yeah, I think similar to like what Katie was saying about um, mm. looking to theater in immersive theater, there's also games, like the games industry mm. have been working with this, doing interaction and telling stories and telling long, epic, great stories through games. And it's, it's worth having those conversations with people from that industry as well and kind of combining that knowledge rather than just approaching it from, oh, I've made documentaries, I'm coming up from that angle. I think involving people from other industries is really important. Um, I can speak to kind of a couple of things. At the moment, we're distributing... Um, our past projects have been festival only, um, and that has been kind of a choice that was made initially and then we just kind of got so busy we didn't really have time to version it for um, for public release. We could have done that. Um, within that, that subset of people who were coming to festivals to watch, um, to watch films, we found that it was, there was no one key demographic that were turning up to see VR experiences. Everyone is super excited about it. Like you literally, you know, there are always cues and there were people that were young, there were people that were, you know, we've shown people that are like 98 years old, our, you know, our films. So I think having, you know, having taken away that barrier of access, they're already there, they're in front of a headset, they have someone to help them, everyone is interested, right? Um, so that's what I see as being kind of the future. At the moment, in terms of who's got headsets, um, everyone can have one. Um, everyone can have a basic one. The people who have got the more sophisticated ones are generally developers or enthusiasts at the moment, and that is literally about to change in you know, a month's time because the consumer um, headsets are being released now. So for our upcoming projects, we are um, doing kind of two-tier distribution. We're doing physical installation still. We're partnering with museums. So for the Irish Uprising project, we are going to be installing it throughout the UK in physical locations. Um, and that's going to be the first phase. We're also doing a mobile version, which will go out on just on, you know, like a store, similar to the App Store that people can download. But, you know, and, and the barrier to entry for headsets is becoming ever cheaper. The cardboards are $15. They're, you know, they're a, they're a reduced experience. But, but um, what do you expect for 15 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> and they're an interesting one because Google has deliberately sort of started with schools as a um, distribution platform so they're sending the cardboards out to all the schools and they're starting to do that in Australia I believe mm. quite soon um, and you know the expeditions which Google offer which are the opportunity to take a field trip to another part of the planet and they're developing in kind of curriculum based services around that so that's quite an interesting um, one for us. We are uh, haven't gotten to distribution obviously um, as the ABC we just sort of provided information for people how they could do it and, and put it on YouTube but I mean for for a, a, a short video YouTube 360 and Facebook are great mechanisms to distribute your content <laughs> like there's a, a lot of opportunity for them to um, go somewhere it's just about explaining to people how you know, how they can do it, and also deciding whether or not that's the experience, the cardboard experience, is the one that you want your audience to have, or do you want them to have, you know, an experience that's a bit more kind of immersive and sophisticated, in which mm -hmm. case you're still waiting to see what's going to happen with, you know, PlayStation, with the Samsung gear, which flew off the shelves when it went on sale, like just boom, gone, everyone bought, bought it up, so... 
um, and yeah, the Vive one. So uh, I think LG have just come out with one. Like every handset manufacturer has decided to get in on the gig at the moment. So mm. we'll see more and more of that. And it will be very interesting to see what Facebook does for me because if we're entering into a world where people suddenly experience VR social, you know, that you can talk to your friend from the other side of the world wearing your VR headset, that it's really, that changes. I mean, there's a lot of people <laughs> using Facebook, so that, that's really going to change the dynamic as well. Mm. Thank you. Julie, can you just say that stat that you told us at the beginning about how many people bought a Vive? Oh, yeah, so pre-orders yesterday and they sold 15,000 in the first 10 minutes and so yeah. the Vive is is a bit more expensive than the Oculus and yeah. which has already had its computers too so and a lot of people have Vibes a lot of developers so um, pretty interesting statistic that's like a lot of revenue for a really expensive headset in 10 minutes. <laughs> I think another really interesting distribution model, and I think again, it's it's about getting the the hardware out there initially, before we can really start to measure, you know, the subsets of people that are then kind of watching different experiences. But um, but the New York Times did a big push, and they obviously sent out, they posted to all their subscribers, um, New York Times branded cardboards, and then they have their own app. And I think I think Kia is on the app. Is that right, Julie? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So Kia is there, and you can. So if you have a if you have a um a headset that you received as a subscriber to the New York Times, you can then watch like all these different experiences. So, you know, I think they sent out 100,000? Yeah. 100,000 headsets across America. So, and that was very successful for them. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I think there's going to be some issues. I do. Um, and I don't, I mean, I, like I was saying earlier, I think there will be experiences that really kind of step over the line and we're going to find that the line is, is a much different line than we thought it would be and that we have kind of had in the past. I mean, like I say, I can't, like I, I watched one horror experience and it was literally, if you'd watched this on a flat screen, on a flatty, it would have been so unscary. But I, <laughs> I, I had nightmares, right? And it was just, you know, it was just a little ghost popping up in a dark environment. I was like, oh, God. So, yes, I think that there are going to be issues, and I don't know who's going to regulate it, but obviously regulation is a thing that big bodies like to do, so. <laughs> Oculus advised that, and Samsung as well, and probably HTC have all said that they, the headset shouldn't be used by anyone under 13. But that's like a recommendation. Like but that's, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's a recommendation, and it's not enforced you can't yeah. enforce it and there are kind there are so if you go into the oculus store where you're going to download your content from there are sort of rating systems yeah. i think there will be kind of user feedback will, will get built into it so you get comments and this is not appropriate for kids they i didn't like a, this they have an approval system like yeah. the app store so it's like submitting an app to apple or something yeah. you rely on them to approve your content so yeah. you know you're consuming media content at some point somebody's gonna need to regulate what's successful and i mean yeah i mean Obviously, porn's already a thing, and yep. <laughs> sex is a thing in uh, VR, yeah. and so you know that those kind that kind of content experience is also kind of it's just floating around in the mainstream as well. So how you know how people make the distinction between content that's designed. Mm. I think I think now the big studios in mm. the US are getting involved. The big mm. film studios in the US are getting involved. That's not. It's, it's going to follow quickly. Like mm. I think, when there's the big, the bigger productions, mm. then they're going to have to classify them because I think they'll come from that film world and mm. and games are still classified as well, aren't they? So yeah. 
And I think, as you said, it's going to be feedback um, when people are actually, when those consumer head, headsets have actually shipped and people are starting to watch this, mm. it's going to be done through that. And yeah, I'm not sure. We'll see how successful it is. Um, well, yeah, uh, that brings us to the end. So thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, if you wanted to experience some virtual reality documentaries, including Ascent that Katie mentioned and Warwick Gold that Astrid was talking about, um, and Kia, which mm -hmm. Julie was talking about, um, we are running a VR salon in Fitzroy tonight at 6 p.m. Um, there's still a few tickets left online. Uh, I did send out an email a couple of days ago so you should have it in your inboxes. Um, but if you Google Storia Salon um, and access the Eventbrite page, you can register there. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Great. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.